Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Well, as we begin Holy Week, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to go over uh, some of the biblical material and also to take a look at some of the alleged uh, discrepancies and contradictions that uh, critics bring up. Uh, Last year, you remember, we spoke with Jimmy Aiken about his book, A Daily Defense, and so I've asked him to join me again to answer particular questions about Holy Week and uh, its presentation in the Scriptures. Jimmy, of course, uh, is uh, a Catholic Answers, where he has been uh, head of uh, senior apologist, and um, it's a great pleasure to have you back with me, Jimmy. Thanks. Thank you, my pleasure, Al. How are you doing? Good. What is your What is your position now? It's not here in my notes. I'm wondering, has it changed? No, I'm I'm senior apologist, yeah, which I've been for many years. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. I don't know. It's just not in my notes here, and I got scared, wondering if I was going to oh. call you something that you're not. So, <laughs> well, that would be the end of the world, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have you back. Tell people very briefly about a daily defense because it's a it's a unique i don't know anything like this in apologetic literature and it's worth pointing out how different it is well um so i'm sure people are familiar with those like 365 day books where there's like a reading for each day of the year Mm -hmm. and that's basically what this is um although i actually include a page for leap year uh each page in the book is a single entry so it only takes a few minutes to read. And what's unique about it is, unlike most of the 365-day books, which are typically devoted to, say, you know, spiritual uh, kind of pastoral Mm -hmm. things, uh, they're kind of spiritual reading. This is apologetics, and so it's meant to help you learn how to defend different aspects of the faith. And so every day uh, considers a different challenge and there will be a challenge to the faith, either the Christian faith generally, or the Catholic faith specifically, or even just the concept of faith. Um, and then I, I offer a response to that challenge in in the rest of the page. And they're not uh, tied to the days of the year, they're just numbered day one, day two, day three. So you can start on any day of the year, and mm-hmm. you can also read ahead if you want. A lot of people just like they like to binge-watch TV shows you can binge read these if, <laughs> that's uh, right. if if that's what strikes your fancy. Sure. So, for instance, on day three twenty seven, uh, th- uh, there's the challenge uh, regarding the triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. Uh-huh. Quote: Matthew right. contradicts the other gospels when he says that Jesus used two animals during his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It also absurdly says he rode both at once. And you respond. Well, um, so, number one, there's no contradiction here. Uh, One of the things that every author has to do is decide what details they're going to include in their account. And that's especially true in the ancient world, because back then, books were fantastically expensive. A single copy of a single gospel would cost you between like one and the equivalent of one and two thousand dollars. Wow. I mean, they were just amazingly expensive. And so as a result, there was price pressure to keep books short. And that meant that the evangelists knew a lot more details about Jesus than they could possibly record. And so they had to make choices about which details they're going to include. And uh, most of the evangelists mention uh, I mean, all four of the evangelists mentioned the triumphal entry. Most of them, all of them but Matthew, 
uh, choose to only mention the fact that he rode one animal. Mm-hmm. Um, in Matthew, a second animal is mentioned, uh, and Matthew seems to be mentioning that for a specific reason. Uh, Jesus is doing this act to fulfill a prophecy from the book of Zechariah. And when you read the relevant passage in Zechariah, it's ambiguous about whether the king is going to ride one or two animals, and whether there's going to be one or two animals. And different Jews interpreted the, the prophecy different ways. And so it looks like uh, Matthew, uh, it lo- what it looks like is Jesus decided to make sure to satisfy everybody, so no matter which interpretation of the prophecy you, you took, mm-hmm. he was going to f- fulfill it. Um, so there wouldn't be any ambiguity that he's making his messianic entry into Jerusalem. Yeah. And because Matthew is writing for an audience that's more that's more Jewish and more familiar with the prophecies, and thus more likely to know about the two-animal interpretation, um, he mentions both of the animals. The other evangelists writing for less Jewish audiences, um, who won't be as familiar with the details of Zechariah, only mention one animal. And also, if you look at the way John quotes Zechariah, he uh, edits it in a way that it only mentions the one animal, so the confusion doesn't arise. In terms of what Jesus physically rode, it's possible that he rode the animals sequentially, um, but it's also possible that he just rode on one of them, but there were two animals used, because what he was doing was riding on a colt that had never been ridden before. Mm. And the second, and so it's not broken. And the second animal was the colt's mother. And uh, so what they could have done is simply had the mother leading the colt so that the colt would remain calm and be willing to be ridden, uh, even though it wasn't yet broken and used to being ridden on its own yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, you don't just jump on a, you just don't jump on a colt like that and expect to, of course, he could have, well, just like he stilled the, stilled the storm. I suppose he could have stilled the colt, too, but uh, you're right. I mean, you can't just jump on an unbroken animal and expect to uh, gracefully uh, come into the city. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's jump to the b- release of Barabbas. Uh, okay. Because uh, I want to go over a bunch of these things that we'll be reading about this week and hearing about. The Gospels claim that Pilate uh, customarily released the criminal at Passover, and mm-hmm. people say, well, that's just made up. That's a fiction. We don't have any evidence for that. That's just put in there. What do you well, say? Well, um, I, I would say a couple of things. Uh, you know, when people claim we don't have any sources referring to this tradition, well, yeah, we do. We've got four, Matthew, Mark, <laughs> Luke, and John. I mean, just because it's in the Gospels doesn't mean you get to discount it as historical evidence. <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, if if we had Josephus, who is a Jewish historian from later in the first century, if Josephus mentioned this custom once, people wouldn't even question it. Well, here we've got four sources saying that <laughs> that that it existed, and they're all earlier than Josephus. So um, there's no reason to discount the testimony of the Gospels on that basis. Also, um, the Gospels—now, different people have different interpretations about whether John was writing with the knowledge of the other evangelists. But if he was not, then that would represent not just an additional source, but an independent one. That's true. That's right. 
that right. so we'd have in not just four repetitions of the tradition, but an but more than one independent account of the tradition. That's right. Um, in my view, John uh, did know about the others. In fact, he he knew very clearly. I think about Mark because he writes his gospel in a way that's deliberately designed to interlock with Mark's. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he's also an eyewitness, and so we have an eyewitness telling us this custom existed. Um, furthermore, we know that similar things uh, have been done throughout history. Um, it, when you have a, a populace that is hostile to your regime, it's Often, uh, rulers will often try to find things to do to mollify the population, and sometimes releasing prisoners is one of those things. We can even think of examples in our in, in just recent times where that's happened, like when Gandhi in India would be imprisoned and the British would release him, mm-hmm. or when here in America Martin Luther King would be in prison mm-hmm. and he would get released, or in South Africa where Nelson Mandela was in prison and he got released. And so releasing a a popular prisoner in order to pacify the populace is a common thing in history, and we know that it was done in ancient Israel, because, um, for example, we know from Josephus, I know it doesn't say this happened every year, but Josephus later records how the Roman governor Albinus um, released a popular prisoner at the urging of the Jewish authorities, and... uh, uh, there are Jewish writings like the Talmud that talk about uh, special provisions for slaughtering the Passover lamb for prisoners to be released at Passover. Hmm. And that okay. was apparently a regular thing. So even though we don't have it specifically said the Roman governor would do this every year, we do have uh, enough people being released at Passover, which is when this was, that even the Talmud makes mention of special provisions for making sure they could eat the Passover lamb. Very good. Uh, Easter is often said to be uh, a pagan holiday based on the goddess Ishtar, based on the full moon and the spring equinox. Uh, Is Easter a pagan holiday? Nah. (laughs) Um, The the thing is, uh, this charge comes up. Now, there's kind of two variations on it you mentioned. One of them is the goddess connection. Um, now, Ishtar was a goddess that was worshipped in Mesopotamia, which is Iraq. And Easter is a name that arose in England and with roots in Germany, and because English is a Germanic language. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a thousand miles away from right. Iraq. Right. Ishtar was never worshipped in England and Germany. Um, you know, there was just no cultural connection there. And so despite the similarity of the words, they, you know, Easter does kind of sound like Ishtar. This is one of those linguistic coincidences. There are only so many sounds that yeah. the human mouth can make. Right. And so we have unrelated but similar sounding words in all kinds of different languages. This is one of those. Um, so the Ishtar thing doesn't work. Uh, there is a claim by the uh, like ninth century church historian from England known as the Venerable Bede. Mm-hmm. He's actually a doctor of the church. And in his book on the reckoning of time, he says that the holiday Easter is named in English after the month in which it occurred on a calendar that was kind of old-fashioned in his time. And he says that, that the name of that month was named after a German goddess named Iostre. Hmm. Well, 
the thing is, Bede is the only person who mentions this goddess. We don't have any other records of this goddess. Wow. And so it could, and he's even talking about something from before his time. So he doesn't have personal knowledge of this. And that means he could be mistaken. Sure. You know, sure. this isn't something that was common in his day. But even if he's not, let's suppose there was this, you know, Eostre goddess and he's right about that and she lent her name to this month and then the month lent its name to the holiday. Does that make the holiday pagan? No, because it's based on uh, a Jewish holiday, which we can talk about after the break. Very good. We will. My guest, Jimmy Aiken, taking a look at this remarkable uh, book, A Daily Defense. It's uh, 365 days plus one. Uh, These are all apologetic uh, Q&As, outstanding presentation. We're going to continue. We're talking about the Passion Week and uh, critics. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Jimmy Aiken. We are talking about the uh, critics, uh, points that critics bring up regarding uh, aspects of Passion Week, especially biblical uh, challenges from uh, Scripture. Uh, again, most of these are a result of ignorance uh, or superficial associations. But uh, they're worth going over because, again, you never know when this kind of conversation is going to be popping up, and it's always good to know that there are answers uh, out there. We're talking about uh, Easter and the claim that it's a pagan holiday, uh, but in fact it is rooted in the Passover. Uh, so Jesus, Jesus is uh, uh, the, the the Paschal mystery that we refer to. And the events surrounding the, the, the Triduum are rooted in Jesus's uh, uh, celebration of the Passover. Is that fair to say? It is, and in fact, the idea that Easter would be pagan, you know, based on the name of the holiday, is something that really only an English speaker or maybe a German speaker would even come up with. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the name of Easter in other languages you figure out its connection with Passover really fast. Uh, in Italian, the name for Easter is Pasqua. In Spanish, it's Pascha. In Portuguese, it's Pascoa. In French, which I really can't pronounce, it's <laughs> Pakes or Pak. In Danish, it's Pascha. In Dutch, it's Pasen. In Swedish, it's Pask, and so on. Um, you know, it's it just really clearly connected with the Hebrew word for Passover, right. which is Pesach. Yeah. And so this isn't based on a goddess from somewhere. This is just the Christian equivalent of Passover. It occurs at the same time. Its timing is based on the timing of Passover, and that's why... Um, we have the holiday. It, it long predates the evangelization of England and Germany, and so it's simply not not pagan. Yeah. Uh, now, you mentioned a connection with the Paschal moon, and sometimes, oh, the fact there's a moon involved could make people think, well, maybe that's pagan. Except, no, because that's just how the Jewish calendar worked. Right. Uh, every culture on Earth you, at least in its roots, uses astronomical phenomena to mark time, uh, the motions of the sun and the motions of the moon, 
and the motions of the stars. Um, the motions of the sun give us the day-night cycle. The, the motions of the moon and well, or the phases of the moon give us the, the actually the word month. That's where a month comes from and why months are about as long as a cycle of the moon. And then the annual cycle of the sun and the stars gives us the year. And so uh, the ancient Jews used a lunar calendar, and Passover was their spring festival uh, commemorating uh, the exodus from Egypt. And so it occurred uh, at the time, or in con- in conjunction with the time, of the uh, full moon occurring near the spring equinox. Very good. Let me bring up a question that uh, I'm hearing more, uh, more and more, and that is that uh, there's something intrinsically cruel about uh, the, the crucifixion, and not just cruel from mm-hmm. the standpoint of uh, Romans or from the human point of view, but in fact, a, what kind of God do we have that would have required the sacrifice uh, of his son? Couldn't an omnipresent uh, God figure out a less violent way uh, to save us? Absolutely. Uh, this is something Thomas Aquinas talks about. He considers the objection, why couldn't God have simply—he doesn't say snap his fingers, but, you know, why doesn't God essentially just snap his fingers and say your sins are forgiven? Right. Um, well, he could. He's, omnip- he's omnipotent, and so he could do that. And that raises the question of why would he choose to do it this way? Well, um, obviously, he set some precedents— in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus, things like the Passover lamb, or the whole system of having uh, sacrifices for sin, and Jesus is fulfilling those patterns. Mm -hmm. But that only pushes the question back a step to why would he set those patterns. And um, it seems that there are a couple, at least a couple of things in play here there are at least a couple of lessons of a fundamental nature that are taught to us by allowing this to happen. And I want to mention the allowing part, um, because a lot of times people assume God is actively causing something when he's not. He's tolerating it, and he'll, he'll tolerate evil for a good reason, But that's not the same thing as actively causing evil. Um, What the Romans did to Jesus was evil. Uh, What the Jewish authorities did to Jesus was evil. Um, They had ill will. They had, uh, you know, uh, hearts that were set on doing evil. It was sinful what they did. But God didn't cause them to sin. He allowed them to sin. And then, as with our sins, he brings a good out of it. So it's not he's actively causing this, he's tolerating this for purposes of a greater good. And in terms of the lessons that we learn by this, we learn at least a couple of things. One of them is just how bad our sins are. If it took the death of the Son of God mm-hmm. to, to make atonement for them, that shows us that our sins are really bad, because mm-hmm. they're committed against an infinitely good God. Also, it shows us something else, which is just how much God loves us, that he would be willing to die for our sins. And so those twin lessons of the gravity of sin and the depths of God's love are things that wouldn't come out 
if he simply snapped his fingers and said, you're forgiven. But by allowing this to happen to Jesus on the cross as the means of our redemption, he shows us these things. Shows us the destructive nature of sin. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way of driving it home to us. So, I mean, we're forgiven, not merely excused. And that forgiveness is costly. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Purgatory uh, comes into play because the good thief on the cross is promised that he'll be with Jesus that day in paradise. And so purgatory mm-hmm. can't exist because Jesus said, you're going to be with me today. Well, who says purgatory has to take more than a day? <laughs> you know, I mean, you're, we're importing some assumptions here. Uh-huh. Um, now, if you, if you look let's say, at uh, Pope Benedict's encyclical, Spes Salvi. Uh, He's got a discussion of purgatory where he talks about the view that uh, a lot of theologians have proposed, that it's essentially a transforming encounter with Christ. Mm -hmm. And Pope Benedict uh, is of the opinion that that encounter can't be measured in earthly time. Mm -hmm. So it could happen... In, a, in, in an existential way to us that we really can't match up to, you know, the ticking of the clock. Right. And if that's the case, which then, which is maybe how time works in the afterlife anyway, um, then Jesus's affirmation to the good thief doesn't presuppose anything about precisely how long things are going to be taking in earthly time. Right. But let's suppose time works exactly the same way in the afterlife that it works here. Uh, and that he literally meant the thief is going to be with him in paradise in that day, that 24-hour period. Well, um, so Paul tells us at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, we're all going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. So any remaining consequences of our sins that need to be dealt with will be dealt with in the twinkling of an eye, in an infinitesimally small space of time. So that could happen with the good thief as well. Uh, Your purgatory is only going to take the amount of time God wants it to, Mm -hmm. because once again, he's omnipotent and can purify you as quickly or as slowly as he wants to. Sure. So that's not a barrier. There's also an issue uh, that's worth mentioning in the Greek. Um, The statement, uh, I tell you today you will be with me in purgatory, can be understood more than one way. The today could be referring to when Jesus is saying it, or it could refer to when he's going to be there. Ah, so you could okay. either read it as, I tell you today, right. you're going to be with me in, in paradise, or you could read it as, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Right. It can go either right. way. Okay. Uh, somebody would say, well, why why we have this common expression about getting time off from purgatory, what does time have to—why do, do we use time in uh, measuring purgatory? Where did that begin? Well, um, so there used, to be a, uh, there used to be a practice in the Church of uh, doing penance for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and, and if you go back to, like, some very ancient documents, there will be uh, penalties like 10 years of penance for having an abortion— Mm-hmm. And um, and in the ancient church, people would total up certain amounts of times of penance for various things that they'd done. Uh, didn't mean they weren't already forgiven, but they were doing this penance as a way of saying, I'm sorry for what I did. 
And that's analogous to purgatory. And so um, people would use this as a kind of analogy to, if, if you did things that could reduce the amount of time you were doing of penance. It was analogous to doing things that would reduce your, quote-unquote, time in purgatory. So that's kind of where that comes from. Mm -hmm. The problem is we don't know a lot about how time works in the afterlife. We do know it exists in some form. Uh, All creatures are in some way bound by time, so we're never going to be eternal in the sense that God is of being completely outside of time. Um, But that's where that comes from. Okay. Um, There's people... Uh, try to say that uh, the New Testament, uh, got, the Gospels are not reliable because uh, the various date, dating of events don't add up properly, including the dating of the crucifixion. And uh, What are the mm-hmm. problems surrounding the dating of the crucifixion? Well, um, if, if you really uh, do a careful study of this, it's actually very straightforward. Um, we're told that Jesus was crucified on uh, a Friday, and because that's the Jewish day of preparation, the mm-hmm. day they would get ready for the Sabbath, because they, for example, couldn't cook on the Sabbath. So you needed to make all of your meals for the Sabbath on a Friday, and it came to be called the Day of Preparation. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified on the Day of Preparation. Um, <clears throat> so we know that he was uh, crucified then. We also can even determine the year. It has to be either A.D. 30 or 33, and the best money is on the traditional date of 33. Okay. Jimmy, thanks again. Always good talking with you. And uh, a daily defense, 365 days plus one to becoming a better apologist. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks.